Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Cineflix Productions' JC Mills, Station 6's Tony Tackerbury, and Intuitive Content's Patrick Wheeland about the state of the North American non-scripted market. And from writer Lawrence Sakira and dancing ledges Lawrence Bowen about new BBC supernatural drama Domino Day. The 2024 Real Screen Summit wrapped in New Orleans this week, an annual confab for those in the non-scripted space with ABC Entertainment's Rob Mills, National Geographic's Tom MacDonald and HBO's Nancy Abraham and Lisa Heller among the speakers. Following the commissioning slowdown of the past few years, precipitated by the creation of Warner Brothers Discovery and industry-wide cutbacks, continued consolidation and constricted budgets remained themes at this week's event. Cineflix Productions President and Head of Content JC Mills, Station 6 founder Tony Tackerberry and Intuitive Content President Patrick Wheeland spoke with Clive Whittingham about the state of the North American factual market and prospects for the year ahead. Hi guys, welcome back to the C21 podcast. We are at the Real Screen Summit which is back in New Orleans. Um, I am, as ever, joined by uh, three North American producers. We're going to uh, slice and dice the North American market. It was very bleak last year in Austin. I'm hoping there are more positive stories to tell. It certainly feels a little bit busier here this year and a, a little bit more optimistic, although there is a phrase going around, survive until 25, which I'm hoping to turn into thrive before 25, but we'll see how the... Uh, the podcast goes. So uh, let me tell you who we've got with us. We've got uh, JC Mills, who is uh, president and head of content at Cineflix Productions. We've got uh, Tony Tackerbury, who was once head of Lion TV US and is now the founder of his own company, Station Six. You must be mad founding a company in this uh, in, the, in this climate. That's but that's all right. Really, really appreciate you pointing that out. <laughs> but we'll 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 come, we'll come, we'll come on to that. And uh, we've got Patrick Wyland, who is the president of Intuitive Content. So, guys, thanks for for joining us. For people, you've all been on the podcast before, but for people that haven't heard you, and I'll start with you, Patrick, just give us the sort of elevator pitch for your company and what shows you're making at the moment that you're excited about that people might know you for. Great. Uh, we're a company founded by Andrew Zimmer and the global food personality. We started out in food and travel shows. Um, I came on about six years ago and have been building out. We're doing everything from big doc series to uh, lifestyle we're dabbling in true crime. We have a home renovation show that we're in the middle of production on. Um, pretty broad reach and diversifying our content, our talent slate. Um, based in Minneapolis, which prior to COVID was sort of a difficult one, but now post-COVID, it's sort of as people have boomeranged and left the coast, it's been sort of a boom for us. Amazing. Tony, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, tell, tell me about it's your. Fine. Tell I me, believe it, <laughs> that it's fine. Tell me about. Uh, uh, tell me about Station Six. What, uh, what's uh, what's the company ethos and what are you excited about? Uh, yeah. Where, where did the name come from? Uh, you really want to know? Yes, let's okay. hear it. Station Six is uh, came from uh, a movie that my grandfather made called Station Six Sahara, that uh, Scorsese cites as a reference. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's pretty. You asked. Yeah, it's, pretty, yeah, it's a pretty good. It's a pretty good story. <laughs> My grandfather was a garbage man, so I wrote. All there you go. Okay. Yeah. Like Mine works on the steelworks. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're now make, both making me feel like shit. So uh, for that Ponzi story. No. Uh, it's uh, yeah. So that's it. And and I'm trying to replicate what we did at Lion. Formats, true crime, history. Those are three main areas that. Um, we we've sort of um, had success in and always had success in. And honestly, and it sort of speaks to your bigger question about, you know, the state of things. Um, I definitely feel as a company that things have moved. We've managed to close five deals in the last four months, five months. And having had, to your earlier point, a pretty bleak period before that, particularly this year, uh, when I did wonder what I was doing <laughs> setting up a company in this climate. Um, and so, and they ran the gamut, um, crime, history, paranormal format. So uh, excited about all of that. That's great news. And uh, like I say, hoping to be a little bit more optimistic on the podcast this year than we were in Austin last year when everybody was rattling around the hotel looking for a buyer. Yeah. So um, so yeah, great start. Uh, JC, who makes, uh, your company makes my favorite show, Air Crash Investigation. I am the person that just watches Love and it. can quote and like, 
tell you every air crash going because that's the kind of person I am. Happy tell us, <laughs> apart from air crash investigation, what else does, uh, um, does Cineflix Productions do? Happy to tell you, uh, I'm not sure if I'm breaking news, maybe I am. Uh, we are going into production on season 25, so we're very excited about that. Uh, we've done American Pickers for over 400 episodes for history. Um, we have a long history in true crime. Um, we do, you know, lifestyle shows. Uh, Property Brothers was our original original show, so we tried to get that that part of our company back up. And we have a new show for HGTV, a new show for uh, for Lifetime. We also do scripted um, movies for Hallmark for Lifetime. Uh, we have a big distribution company, Cineflix Rights, attached to our company. We work very closely together. Uh, we are a Canadian company. So that gives us a lot of levers to pull in this market, especially right now. I was going to say, you're based in New York yourself, but your company is based in Canada with all the... That must, the that's, that's a great place to, to be in this, yeah. in this market. And every, all the chat this week is co-productions and tax breaks, all the goodies, all as the you goodies. say. Yeah. That's the place to be, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, we, when I sort of got here almost four years ago, um, everybody was like, oh, we're going to build up New York. And I was like, well, no offense to New York, and I love New York. Like, uh, but you got to produce out of Canada if you have the ability to. And that's what we do. You know, New York is really for development, some executives, um, but for the most part, we're pushing all production to Canada. And God bless the uh, aviation industry's attitude to safety that you've managed to make it to 25 <laughs> seasons of uh, 25, <laughs> 25 seasons of it. Hear about that. Like, true crime. There's always murders. Yeah. Air crash investigation. You know, there's always Boeing. They keep giving us uh, material. Um, yeah, like every just, every passing week. Up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's interesting because I think, you know, what happened in, in Tokyo, where everybody got off the plane, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, we sort of looked at that as like airplane safety has come a long way from the early episodes of yeah, what we were seeing yeah, these yeah. Cr crashes to the fact that everybody could get off a plane like that and, and everyone was safe. is extraordinary. I'm such a geek about your show that I know the Air Canada incident that led to the uh, improvement of the evacuation of planes that meant that everybody got off in Tokyo. I can literally quote air crash. Yeah. We're not going to do that. Um, the, first, <laughs> the first question I asked you all to bring... <laughs> If you can, um, we're basically most of the way through real screen now. Like I say, it was very bleak last year. Feels a little bit better this year. Um, what are your big? What's your big takeaway from the week so far? And again, Patrick, I'll, I'll I'll start with you. What's your big takeaway from the week? There seems to be more optimism. I mean, the buyers are taking a lot more. In, you know, the the media, they're asking for great ideas and looking for. It feels like things are turning around. We had a really good year last year. Um, and we're just expanding our co-productions with those partners. And so meeting new other showrunners and stuff that we've really looked at this market as a place for that sort of finding other talent to partner with. All co is it co-production or nothing really? Does anybody give you 100% of a budget now? Or? Yeah, we've, we have, we're in production on a few that we had. Um, yeah, there are. Budgets are lower, tight. But we're able to manage the cost a little bit more. We're almost in Canada, though we don't get those incentives. We're in Minnesota. Minnesota does offer some incentive money, which is new. They've just uh, expanded that this year. So that's helping us as well to grow there. But uh, optimism in the market, it feels like it, but there's not a lot of buyers here. And Still. Yeah. There's basically one, there's basically one buyer per network, yeah. which is you can imagine how thrilled they must be to have all these producers that are looking to sell their shows, and they are jammed with meetings from morning till night. But that's sort of where we are. Yeah, isn't it, like when I started coming to Real Screen like 11, 12 years ago, there were like 50 different cable nets all owned by different companies that you yeah. could pitch to, but now they're basically all owned by three companies and yeah. they've all got a tariff, so you yeah. can't sort of play anybody right. off yeah. against each there's other, no right? There's no leverage, you know, back in the day um, when I was at Nat Geo, this is like 2012, 13, 14, you could go out with a mail skewing project and literally have seven or eight places to sell it. Mm. Science and Discovery, although they were under the same banner, they were competitive, you know. Um, you had Spike, you had uh, Animal Planet, you had all these places that could develop and you could sort of tweak that show to sort of find the angle, you know, add a raccoon and now you have an Animal Planet show. So it was just like, it, <laughs> it, it was just like, what, you know, what could you do? And now you want to pitch a male skewing show, you have really two places, maybe three, but the lanes have, been, have become so specific that you, you don't have the optionality to go to different places really. You know, if it's, if it's history programming, you kind of know where you're going. And, they're not going to buy things that aren't really history, you know. So it's like, it's gotten a lot harder because you lose your ability to have leverage, and your opportunity for buyers has just become a lot more limited. Tony, what's your uh, your big takeaway from from your week here so far? Yeah, I, I, I agree with uh, both the chaps. I think um, it used to be a bun fight at real screen, and it it, it 
definitely isn't that anymore in, in, in many respects. Is that a reference to what happened to me on the street? That's exactly <laughs> what I was talking about. I'm, I'm going to get it out of you at some point, JC. We're going to talk about it. Um, and I would say I agree there's, there's optimism, a little more optimism. I'm not getting particularly, you know, it's, it's just a, a notch up, really, from where it was. It's not anything spectacular. And I think part of it is everything we just talked about that it's just harder across the board, I think, and it's gonna stay like that. I don't think that's gonna particularly change. So I think what we're doing and what I've heard here, and JC was talking about it yesterday in his panel, is finding alternative, you know, adapting to the new environment and finding alternative ways to not only make money over the, of the things you're doing, but get the financing right and doing all that kind of stuff. And I think it's quite a positive thing to hear people having that sort of, okay, solution-oriented approach. And I think that's great, um, still hard. Um, and then the other thing I heard today, which I thought was really good, that was probably the best thing I've heard, the most positive thing was a, a, a big buyer from one of the classic legacy cable networks saying, last year people came to talk and do generals and, and there really wasn't that much stuff being pitched. And I'd never really thought about it that way around. I mean, I don't, I don't often come here to pitch because we have access to the buyers in uh, round, uh, year round. Um, but I thought I thought everyone else was. And that wasn't the case last year. And he said this year is completely different. This year people are really pitching quite hard. Good news. Okay. Same. Yeah, we we definitely came here with like and obviously different tapes for different buyers. But we definitely came with like six or seven projects that we had been working on. Um, you know, from November that period where the business kind of shuts down, that like post Thanksgiving to like. New Year's Day, like six weeks where no one really feels like working. Um, and we readied projects from that moment. You're cracking the whip. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> uh, did I say that? Oh, it's recorded. Um, sorry, I thought that was in my head. Um, so, yeah, we had, you know, six or seven weeks and then into January to get these projects ready to go. Decks full, you know, answers to all the questions that come up. And uh, it, was, it was nice to show stuff. So, What was your big takeaway from the week if it, if it hasn't already been said? Definitely co-productions co are still topic of conversation. Um, you know, interestingly, the UK, Canada, Australia, territories that, you know, rarely come out of their own territory fully financed, they're very used to co-productions. Um, the US, really not. So you have American producers trying to figure out well, how to actually do a co-production. So I'm sure we're not the only one, but a lot of the Canadian companies are getting incoming from producers, networks even, to say, hey, can we do this cheaper? Can you do this cheaper? Can you do this with tax credits? Um, how, do we, how do we get the same value for less money? There's only so many ways to do that. The tax credits are one of them. We were talking about this yesterday about the American network reaction to um, the whole tax credit yeah. copro idea, and I was, I was, uh, your, your panel was great, and it was a, a range of, I mean, not you, but everyone else. <laughs> so the panel was. The, great. I said the panel. Fair, fair. <laughs> um, but what I found interesting is there were, I think, four people on the stage, all of whom had shows that they um, showed clips from that were co-productions. Only two out of the four had U.S. money, and only one out of the four, which I think was yours, had a major network. On, yeah. from the US yeah. and I think what we were talking about yesterday is really interesting when it comes to that co-pro idea is the, the Americans aren't used to it they don't have the experience I think there's a little sense that it was well, scary. Um, yeah. Yeah, scary yeah it's scary yeah they don't, they don't know when, when I was in when I was in international distribution this is like what, 12 years ago there was a dedicated co-production executive at oh, wow. the networks where they this was a thing they would look for international money distributors would come in and then that went away for a while where they were not doing co-productions you were we were owning it or get lost. And I think we're back in that position where they need money, they don't have it, they're trying to get creative ways to keep the quality up, um, and you don't have dedicated co-pro executives at these US networks, it's kind of hard to figure out who to talk to about that stuff. Is it programming? Is it scheduling? Is it, is it, it's definitely not development, because I'm probably saying too much now, but I'm gonna go for it. So when you're pitching for development, they're thinking purely creatively. Does this show work for my network, yes or no? Does this fit the mandate that we're trying to find? When you're talking about a co-pro, it's creative plus business. So is this a good business deal for us? Does it fill a need at a price point? And, and this is not a knock to development executives, they're just not equipped to have that conversation. No, so, it's, I, I, so my investors are also Canadian. They're, it's Blue Ant Media, they've been phenomenal. Um, so I get to benefit from all the things that JC's talking about, but it's, 
yeah, it's, a lot of the time you're spent sort of educating uh, the, the development execs, or you know they're just a little sort of non-plus by what you're talking about, and it's only when you maybe get into the business side of things, or I think crucially, whenever you get the international teams involved, if you can, that's when it starts to click. Um, but but it's 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 that same message. I think this is you know this is the way people are looking. This is the way people are thinking in terms of solutions. But there's work to be done. Extra work that you didn't always have to do. Yeah, that's been a big learning for us. We've been a small company, but we just finished a documentary series that'll premiere on PBS. We were able to get most of the funding from PBS and locally, but partnered with Blue Ant. They're bringing in, we were able to get enough to cover a nut, and then we're in the final stages on that with a sponsor. So, you know, it's a little uh, nerve-wracking. It's a new, it's a new language. As, You're it's learning a, to speak a new language. Yeah, exactly. And as we're sort of we're confident in our production. We're able to get it and get it across the line. It's it turned out it's it's working out really great. We're in our final run, but it's a little scary for a small producer learning that and and taking those feeling like you're taking those risks. But you know when you can find great partners like Blue Ant or and PBS who really sort of understand that and you know a little bit of a trust fall there because we're exposed. You know, but um, it's paying off for us in many many ways. So we're thrilled. Do 100%, is anybody commissioning 100%? Yeah, is that rare as hen's example. teeth, aren't they? I'll give you an example. We had a project that actually could have been produced as CanCon a couple years ago. And uh, we showed them the model, we showed them the numbers. They just said, no, we'd prefer to own it. Yeah. Okay. So 100% then. That's, on, that's, that's a on. conversation we're having as well. We sort of, what we're actually doing is presenting the options. So, so yeah, yeah, saying here's the 100% op uh, option. And, and it's, it's fascinating in, in this world where we know the billions of dollars that all these network groups have in debt, in debt and the, the savings they're trying to make. It is fascinating to show the, the, the options and the, the full CanCon tax credit discount is significant, significant. Yeah. and they're still not going for it. And that's upfront money, right? Yeah, well, upfront in that it's part of the financing plan. Yeah. So I even go a step further. When I, when I know the thing I showed yesterday, you know, when, when you have a finance plan that's come together, you have to really think about putting it all together before you even approach the network. Because you don't want to give them the option to sort of take it internal, create their opinion of what should happen, and then you have to move them off of it. Because mm. you're like, oh, no, no, I want to do this as a co-production. So instead, I, I really, and with our team and with International and the tax credits and our finance team, when I go in, when I have a project like that, I will sort of say, here's what I'm offering. You like, the, let's say, assume you even like it, but here's, if you like it, here's how I want to do it. So that, that goes internal. So the first time anybody hears it internally, that's how they hear it. They don't hear it like, oh, wait, what do you want to do? No, no, we want to own it. It's like that wasn't what we were talking about. So at least I'm very upfront about how I want to make the show. I think that's important for any producer that's got a co-pro possibility um, and is pitching it to the U.S. market. So, I mean, obviously budgets are, are nowhere near what they were. Like Tom, yeah. McDo Tom McDonald, Nat Geo, did a keynote last night and said um, that he started in the role 18 months ago and he'd said he was going to do this, this, this and this and he was going to spend this much. And he fully admitted that he doesn't have that to spend anymore. And he said, at least I'm sitting on stage and saying it, no, no, nobody else is. I have to say, I just give transparency in this market is, is the thing I value more than anything. I don't want, you know, it, it, and, and it, you don't always get it. And I think it's it's a it's a really important and vital. I mean, you know, for a startup in particular, where you know you're on a knife edge anyway, um, you you need that clarity and transparency. It's so I, important. I totally agree. Sean Gottlieb had the best panel that I saw. You know, I mean, he's straight up exactly a, a what they want. Annie, um, they know exactly what they want. He's really honest. You know, I I I totally agree. I appreciate that. This. Um, at every step. At every step. Every yeah. step. I just think, you know, come on, give us that. Well, yeah. Especially, especially when you're, especially when you're, yeah, give us something. Especially when you're in development and you delivered something and it's sort of sitting there, doesn't have an answer, and you know that like I like this project. I think I actually have another place or two to sell it. Can I have it back instead yeah. of it sitting here for? And I will say the networks have been really good about that. Yeah. It's like if, if you're not going to do it, you're not sure. Whatever, whatever. I'm not saying I'm not going to bring it back to you if there's an opportunity or whatever, but at least let me go to market with it. Yeah. I, this is a property that I spent nine months yeah, developing. Yeah, exactly. Let me at least go take it out. And, and they've been good about it, I have to say. Yeah. Even Warner Brothers. was We had one that reverted from Warner Brothers, and we sold it within four weeks, that of the reversion. Awesome. Who is 
you know, and you know, they were so great. They loved the show and we wanted it to work. It just wasn't going to work out in their atmosphere. I mean, those people are have, have tough jobs right now. Yeah. So at least they were really gracious and so like, as I was saying, Tom like sat on stage and said that yesterday, and I know you guys won't say it, but last year in, last year in Austin, Kathleen Finch was on stage and said that 2023 is behind us and we're going to be spending, 2022 is behind us and we're going to be spending money and doing 4,000 hours of content. And then you walked across the hall to the Warner Brothers Discovery Suite and there was one buyer sitting in there and she wasn't buying anything. So at least Tom did get up. So budgets aren't where they were, but... To, you, to your point, this co-production thing, again, not to go all during the war, but when I started at C21, like talking to American networks about the idea of the producer retaining any bit of their show, it's like, no, you'll work for hire, you'll get, at that stage, it was a 10% profit margin. I, I think that's a bit of a pipe dream these days, well, I assume it is. But the idea, the, the idea of you guys retaining any of your show, like 10 years ago from an American, because they wanted to populate their channels all around the world. So although budgets are where budgets are, is that a positive to take out of the current situation that you can cut the deal and own your show and take it a little bit around the world? Or am I just look, am I, is that false there's optimism? A, there's a flexibility that you've seen from the network executives that you haven't seen. Um, I think because maybe they, they've now sort of realized what we deal with. And they're very, they're being more supportive, um, and we appreciate that, obviously. But uh, when you have the ability to go to the international markets to find financing, I recommend you try to do it. Um, and the best way to do that, and I said it on the panel yesterday, is really find an international distributor that sells what you're trying to sell, because that means they know exactly who to talk to internationally, and they begin to put your finance plan together. Um, that's a, that's what I would. I yeah. mean, good for good for you guys because you've got a distribution. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that, that. very very fortunate between the tax credits, Cinelux rights. Our reputation as a 25-year-old, you know, company that has delivered thousands of hours of TV, we're in a great spot. I can't say that's true for everybody. So, to the extent we can help, we're always here to help. And you've got Blue Ant as as backers who have a distribution arm as well. So, is that is that is it good news for you? Or am I, am I in a better spot? They, yeah. they own networks. They do own networks. That that which is which has been awesome. Uh, I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to be a bit of a. I feel like I am being the Debbie Downer of this uh, podcast a little bit, in that I think. I think it's a little bit of positive news, but like I said earlier, I just think getting getting those net, the, the networks to embrace the idea. I mean, some some network groups are actually much better and and uh, not much better, but just have been doing flexible. more of it, more flexible. flexible. Who's flexible? Who's not? And, and and actually seeing the opportunity that you know that that they see the opportunity of these kind of deals and the benefit to them, and they they are. They, they, I mean, we. <laughs> They are moderately more complicated deals to put together because you're slicing up territory. So it takes a bit more work. But when you have people that know how to do it or have done it, then it can, it, it can be done. It's just not opening up everywhere. Not everywhere. Not every, it's true. It's yeah. not everywhere. Yeah. It's not. And does it cover the, does that cover the budget that you've lost that you would have, that you used to, used to get? I, I think... Yes, but then the other, the flip side of that is you do get the ownership piece, um, and so I think when you factor that all in, yeah, the deals work. Yeah, when when you have when you have the ability to own the show and, and you're able to do that over you know series and hours and build the catalog for yourself, you know we've like I said we've been doing this 25 years as a company. We have five fast channels. We're probably launching three or four more this year, and the revenue isn't isn't bonkers, but it's but it's real, um, and you want to be able to, to leverage that and treat that almost like an annuity as you go forward. So the ownership piece is a big deal. So Patrick, as, a, as an independent company with, yeah. with, without that, that distribution, yeah. do you, is this, are you looking forward to putting together international deals and having a bit of ownership of your project? Or do, or do you just say, oh, just yeah, write have, me a check? We have one project in, production, in development right now with a foreign investor. But this has been a learning for even a small company like us. We've, we're lucky to find two partners, two different networks that allowed us to distribute internationally and then find the international partners to do the distribution. And we're a small company. We had 84 half hours across five titles at MIPCOM. For a small company like us, that's unheard of. So we're able to look, we're, we're still in the learning phase on that. I mean, it's a, it's an experiment, but it's paid off for us. Not only because, you know, we've had all these series in production, but um, our margins on that, we've been able to make it up within 12 months. So better than we would have if we'd gone straight commission. So 
and those will pay for years. So that's an exciting, if you can find a way and you can find the right partners and you know, you can be flexible on the format so that it matches what the international market wants and what your domestic partner has and if, you know, it can work, you can do it. And that's been exciting for us. And I kind of love figuring out those deals. It's a puzzle. It's a puzzle. It's exactly a puzzle. Yeah. So are those... somebody who was, I was just a producer, director, you know. So no this just. is a steep yeah. learning curve. I know, <laughs> but it's, just. you know, it's, it's it... like been a master class in trying it. And I've kind of gone in, you know, sometimes it's better if you don't know too much because you wouldn't try it if you did. And like, we've been able to do it. And, and that's remarkable. And I think our network partners appreciate that. And they're seeing that hustle and they're opening up and being flexible in more new ways because they know we're able to deliver a great product on budget, on time, but at a really great price point that, you know, if we succeed, they're going to succeed on the international market as well. So everything's in play. So, uh, go on, go on. so I was going to say, are those international markets like MIPCOM, I mean, again, I feel like 10 years ago, a company like yours wouldn't, wouldn't have had would, wouldn't have had much use. You would have just sold it yeah. to a cable net. You would have taken your 10%. You would have produced a show and, and move on. It's a whole different sort of world had, for you guys now. I mean, how, how are you finding we that? We had three different partners, two different distributors at MIPCOM. So it, it was eye-opening. It was our first. So we'll be back. I found, all, I found so much more optimism there in the global TV market and what people are looking for and really learning um, than I, you know, it was a total opposite of last year's real screen there. So part of this conversation about co-productions is coming up because the networks are trying to cost average their big swings, things they think are really going to get people to come in and, and, uh, and watch the networks, whether it's streaming or otherwise. So they have to cost average that down with, with you know, premier hours that are not super expensive. So they have to be flexible and, and they've been. You know, we just, I would just, I hope as, as we went into this year, more networks are more flexible. Because we're not, as Tony said, we're not, we're not seeing it from everybody. There's a perennial problem, even in the good times, that um, the TV channels would sit on panels and say, we don't want derivative content and we want new voices and we want to take risks. And none of it was true. Like actually getting a foot in the door as a new independent producer was, was very, very, very difficult. Now, and fair play, what money they've got to spend, they want to spend with someone that they can actually, they know can execute. I was, I've had lunch with the same independent producer twice this week, and he's down from, and he was so optimistic on his first day, and, he's like, and the show he's got sounds good to me. I would watch that show, and he's Is it playing Chris? It does have aeroplanes in it. It does have aeroplanes in it. Planes crashing. Sue them for trying. It does have planes in it. But he was so optimistic on the first day, and then I had lunch with him again today, and he was already downbeat with it. And he was—he's only a young kid. And I was—I was trying to sort of, what's the solution to that in this environment? New production company idea. Is it? You partner. Yeah. But part with who and how? You. It's sort of the same way I said about distribution. It's like making this up, but like you have a food show. Okay, well, who's the right distribution company for a food show? If you want to do a crime show, who does the best crime shows in the US and Canada? If you want to do a specialist factual show, let's talk to that production company because it takes a lot of the risk out of the equation from the network. It's like, how many shows have you ever delivered? None? Okay, good luck. You know what I mean? Here's so, half a million dollars. Here's, 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 three, here's three million dollars, make me a show. It's like, it's like I, I'd rather, I'm, I'm assuming, the networks would rather place their bets on proven quantities versus someone who's never done it for them. It's, that's, that's why it's so hard for new producers to break in right now. This is the thing, because I was saying, we play a game in our office when a channel puts out a new slate. We, before we open the slate, we like guess the production company. And if, you know, if Nat Geo have put out a slate of six shows, I would, I, would back myself, yeah. Yeah, I would back myself to guess that Plimsoll's probably going to have one of those and Newtopia's going to have one of those. And that's, you know, com that's, you do, that's completely understandable. But how do we get new voices into an industry in this in this state. So Tony, you've started a new company, but you he's are an established producer and every, like, everybody knows you and you've got Blue Ant behind you. Look at him, he's a stud. You've got Blue Ant, you know, the, the jacket, you've got the shoes, you've got the whole thing going on. But like, you've got Blue Ant behind you. But if you didn't, like, if you were starting a production way, company now, he's like... wearing a jacket and shoes for those of you listening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're yeah, yeah. Well, shocker. <laughs> he's wearing shoes today. <laughs> today. <laughs> hey, I've seen some people in New Orleans this week, like, you know, don't knock it. But, yeah. you know, get yeah. Yesterday if was, was a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, how? Like, how would no, you go and, about and by the way, you know what? I, I'll be completely honest with you. I didn't expect the sort of inertia that I first got when I started going out of Station 6 from places I've sold 
hundreds of hours of shows to and produced hundreds of hours and shows uh, of shows for because the, the inertia of well we have our tried and two people that we're working with now and you've just got to find your you know mm -hmm. crack in the door to push it open and I, I was surprised that I have had that difficulty and so I do think someone without that experience it's super tough I think JC's 100% right yeah. I mean Partner. that's certainly true about most things <laughs> in this instance <laughs> I happen to agree with JC um, and it's about finding the right partner um, and uh, finding the right production partner and I think w we as pro producers are absolutely looking for the producer to walk in the door with a great idea because I'm or well, at least I am I'm absolutely flexible on you know cutting deals and doing that kind of stuff and I think that's that's a, a, a key thing I think the other thing is and I think we're all probably equipped with it because we've been doing it for as long as we have you know that sense of resilience and determination I think yeah if you don't have that particularly now don't bother is it even possible or if like if you started a new production company and you're coming here to real screen to my guy was pitching like I probably shouldn't say who he was pitching to but he ran me through the channels he was pitching to and I did sort of think I wonder if you're wasting your time should they actually be pitching to you, you, you guys. Like, yeah. I mean, if you don't have a production company you've never delivered before, you pitch a pitch a production company that's done it, like JC says. I mean, I, I, as I'm an eternal optimist, and I'll say, if you're getting in front of the right people, they'll recognize a decent idea, and, and maybe they're well, the they ones. They may partner you anyway. Yeah, they may partner you anyway. So pick pick somebody that works with you, that's going to yeah. work with you and yeah. they're going to nurture you and not just take your idea and run with it and leave you out. Just find the right partner who can not only get it across the line, but it's going to help you grow like and get you to the next one and the next one after that. So, and that's, that's what we do. This may, this may surprise you, but like, you know, we have never done a shiny floor show, right? I don't expect to be able to just acquire, say I acquired a format from some far flung country and I was like, this is amazing. But I know that a broadcast network is very likely not going to let me produce it. Yeah. And that's okay. I will find the right showrunner to yeah. attach. I will, yeah. I will go to, you know, one of the big companies that do the shiny floor shows and partner to get my foot in the door in the space. And we're a big company. I don't care. Like, that's what I got to do to open up that genre for my company. I will do that. I do, you have to do what you have to do. And that should, that's truly how every producer should be thinking about it at 100%. this point. 100%. Yeah. As, as, ever, as ever very aware that it's four white guys sitting around the table, but that's not great for getting more diversity into the industry, though, is it? By having to... Well, Having a partner? Yeah. So like, how does it like? How do new new voices get into this industry? Like, I just it just feels. I mean, we have like it's becoming more and more. Like screen. I say, I can guess when a slate comes up. I can guess at least four of the six production companies on that slate, and that's not. I don't know. It's, it doesn't feel Look, brilliant I, to I, me. I, like. I don't think this is necessarily the time that you know hundreds of new production companies, present company accepted. I hope, um, and producers sort of. Hit hit the hit the marketplace. I think there's so many challenges that that that's that's just. I think that's going to be tough. Think about all the layoffs we've had. Yeah, like, yeah. the number of Ch Channel Four this week while we were here, yeah. two two hundred layoffs. Think about this. We, we've been through a bit of a fifteen year growth cycle of what was our business, and it exploded when the streamers came in, started throwing silly money at things, and then all of a sudden contracted went from you know, a massive beach ball to a ping pong ball in the span of a year and a half. So where are all those people supposed to go? What, what are they supposed to do? So it's tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of people yeah. across the business are out of jobs it's trying crazy. to figure out what to do next. You're gonna to try to launch your own company, God bless, but I still think you should try to partner with somebody to get that first thing out the door. I agree. Because then you know what you can do. Then you, you partner with anyone at this table or anyone else, and then you go back and you develop something else. And then figure that out. Like you can't just go all in on one thing and say I'm going to make this or nothing. Then you're just—it's foolish. The final question that I was—I was, uh, was going to put to you guys. There's been this phrase going around this week: survive until 25. And it's just like, my God, guys, <laughs> it just feels so so sad almost. But how do we thrive before 25? Like, what's your your optimistic take and look of moving forwards over this year? Because coming to a conference in January and everyone's attitude is survive until 25. I know it is bad out there and I'm not trying to belittle it or whatever, but I just felt so tough hearing that. So Patrick, I'll, I'll start with you as your final thought. Like, how do we thrive before 25 in this moment? Because we've got to find solutions, right? It's no use just sitting around going, budgets are shit, 
you know, like oh, everything's terrible. Like w solutions, how do we thrive before 25? Just uh, work and create your way out of it. I, I hadn't heard the phrase, and I'm glad I hadn't heard it. I think that's a good point, actually. I hadn't heard the phrase. I, mean, you, I haven't heard it. Maybe I've been sitting in too so, many panels. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. I've been Who doing. Who are you hanging out with? <laughs> <laughs> You're bringing us down. <laughs> yeah, don't go down to floor three. I think floor three is the downer floor. Well, no, we're putting our heads down and working our way through it. And we're lucky we have some great partners. And we have some new shows coming out this year that are, you know, we keep leveling up every year, uh, you know, as we're growing this company. and. I'm optimi I'm, I've been optimi I was optimistic last year. We had our best year ever. So, yeah, we, we, hate, we hate you for that. Sorry. <laughs> our, 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 new, our PBS series is called Hope in the Water. I'm really happy. I mean, Couldn't happen a to a nicer guy. You're trying. It's like, a, like what you said. It, you're exactly right. It's a puzzle. And if you're intrigued by the puzzle and, the, you know, and, you've got, and you've got great people you're working with, the great partners and great ideas, and, and you have some reputation with the networks, we're looking for co-pro partners. We're willing to try anything. We're, yeah. we're game. We, no, we're not married to puzzle, one idea. Puzzle, puzzle not Ponzi scheme, you said. Puzzle, puzzle not Ponzi scheme, be as flexible as possible. Yeah. You have an opportunity that may need an attachment, that may need another producer. Don't think about the lost money because 100% of zero is zero. So figure out your best way to get that thing out to market. What is the most attractive way I could bring this thing to that network? Exactly. If they even like it. Think about that. And that's how everybody should be thinking for this year. And don't be so in love with your project that you can't move around in it. Like, you're, you'll be brittle. And is that, when you say what would make it attractive to this market, is that bringing, like, I've already got 20% of the budget, I've already got this, yeah, I've anything. Got it could be anything. It could be financing. It could be another partner. It's like, you know, I, I love this, but if I brought in, you know, fill in the blank with some premium company, does that get me over the line? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Well, let me have that conversation with them. Don't be so precious about saying I need to own this myself, not own it, the content, but own the production. Maybe you've got a partner. Maybe you've got to lay off production or maybe whatever you've got to do to keep things moving and keep your team employed. That's what you should be thinking about. Yeah, I agree with it, all, all of that. But I, I, there are a couple of things, actually. First, I think there's a, there's a sort of flip side to uh, the fact that we're all having to find you know, that the market is different for everyone. Um, and everyone should, and many are, looking at things in a more flexible and adaptable light. And so, for example, we just um, signed talent to a deal, to a pitch that we're taking out, really quite significant talent. And because of the shrinking budgets and everything, we're, we're not going to do the same kind of splits on fees and, and that kind of thing that we might otherwise do. And so we, we sort of did a response that we thought, well, anyway, it, it was a fair one, but it was a tough one. Um, and they went with it. And I think they went with it because they appreciate the market. So I think there are, there are some upsides. And I, I remain optimistic. I think as producers, you have to be pretty optimistic and you have to be adaptable. And I think that's key. I will say there's a tangible moment coming up soon that, you know, after that, I'll start looking ahead. And that's, you know, there's a bunch of shoes, you know, still left to drop. There's uh, Warner Brothers, NBC, Paramount, oh even Nat yeah. Geo. I, and I think until those things are sorted out, it's, 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 it's going to be, you know, we really will not know what the future is going to look. That has to happen. And then we can sort of maybe settle down and go, okay, let's look forward. When to you your point about 25, I mean, imagine, I mean, yeah. something will happen. I think we all kind of know something right. will happen. But it's like, remember what happened when, when Warners went through their whole sort of merger and trying to figure out you know, who's doing what and how and what networks are where. And if that NBC Warners thing comes together, I mean, we're going to have to, 25, it's going to be like 27. Right. You know what I mean? And what does that do to the business and contraction or whatever? I can't think about it because you can make yourself crazy of it. All we can do is head down. Head down. And, and just keep going. Yeah. That's yeah. all you can do. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. We were, go we were so close to get ending on an optimistic know, moment. And then, we, and then we shifted 25 to 20. You, we shifted 25 to 27. <laughs> My God, I'll be dead by then. Um, heaven, in <laughs> heaven in 27. Heaven yeah, in 27. Yeah. I can't wait. There's no way I'm getting in there. Um, <laughs> JC. Tony, Patrick, thank you so much for your time again. Um, best of luck with the rest of your week and your pitches. Um, but from New Orleans and me, Clive Whittingham, the news editor at C21, uh, thank you and good night. New BBC drama Domino Day is a supernatural coming-of-age story about a witch inhabiting the world of dating apps, but where the magical realm she lives in is very much rooted in modern reality. 
The show is the first original series from creator Lauren Sakira, whose other credits include Gangs of London, and who spent a year as writer-in-residence at Producer Dancing Ledge as part of the Fremantle-owned company's mentoring scheme. Sakira and Dancing Ledge chief executive Lawrence Bowen spoke to Michael Picard about making the series, opportunities for emerging talent within the industry, and how tightening budgets are affecting a marketplace still capable of producing breakout hits like Mr Bates versus The Post Office. I mean, Lauren, just give us an introduction to, to Domino Day. Tell us a bit about the show and, and the story. Yeah. So it's a supernatural thriller, um, six times 45 minutes for BBC Three. And it's about Domino, who is a really powerful witch um, who basically needs to feed on the energy of others. She doesn't know why. She doesn't understand it. And she's gone to Manchester to piece together the puzzle about what she is and who she is. All the while, unaware that a coven of witches is following her every move and are convinced they need to stop her before she destroys everything and everyone around her. And there's also a shadowy figure from her past that is also tracking her down. But yeah, it's a very modern, I mean, it's looking at the dating scene as well. You know, Domino uses the apps to sort of find her prey, find these awful men that she can feed on and feel a bit better about herself doing it. And um, yeah, so we just sort of tap into the Manchester dating scene as well. And just, I mean, gives the background to the story. Where did it come from? What are maybe, you know, there's strong themes of identity that you've sort of mentioned already. What other things did you want to talk about through this supernatural story? Yeah, I mean, looking at um, the dating world uh, at the time, you know, I'm well, I'm back on the apps, to be honest. But I was on the apps and I was just like getting really frustrated about the sort of transient nature of um just swipe 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 block ghost you know and i just thought you know a supernatural creature could use this to their advantage so i i began like exploring i think the first 10 minutes of the the first episode i like came to my head sort of fully formed and i sort of built the show around that and and yeah i just i just wanted to touch on a lot of things like even just from a mixed race woman on the dating apps and how you're fetishized sometimes and 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 just yeah just looking at connection and that moment in your 20s where you're sort of finding yourself a bit you don't have your shit together um but yeah it's just I feel like everyone's been through that moment in their life so I, I really felt that it would connect to um quite a wide audience to be honest yeah, absolutely. And and there's also, interestingly, um, sort of with the coven that come in who are looking for Domino, there's um, quite a big sort of discussion around heritage and, and sort of background and, and sort of uh, links to the Caribbean, I guess, particularly that you draw on through what happens in the show, which I won't go into too much. I'll let you sort of explain that a bit. But yeah, tell us a bit about how that features and how that plays in as well. Yeah, um, you're talking about the character of Kat, right? That's yes. right, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I really wanted Kat's journey to sort of mirror dominoes in and also set up one of the big rules of the world with the elders. They are the antagonistic force, you know, they are um, they have their rules and um, they've banned certain magic, including the witch that Domino is. I don't think I can say what she is. <laughs> uh, and also the witchcraft that Kat sort of came from. And um and yeah, when I was just like doing my research into sort of obia magic and, you know, it's it's a real witchcraft that has been banned in Jamaica. And I just thought like, oh, yeah, this this could be like really interesting. I don't think we've seen this on TV or if we have, it's always in a negative light, just like voodoo and, and all of that. So, yeah, I just really wanted to to show a positive story of a, a woman reclaiming her heritage and her roots and sort of yeah going on that journey along with domino our protagonist and then let, let's bring lawrence in because lawrence um we'll talk a bit about how you two know each other because it, it's a relationship that goes back a bit further than domino day but i mean just on the show primarily you know dancing ledge known for true crime like salisbury poisoning the responder sort of traditional police drama this is is this something a bit different for you? How did you kind of come to the project and, and sort of work with Lauren on, on this specifically? Yeah, it's really different. It's really different for us, uh, yeah. which is I think why we're so excited by it, because, you know, that opportunity to blend a real world psychological drama with a supernatural universe 
I'd never been on that journey before. Uh, and it's it's so exciting because you're not only looking at how you make all the characters and their character arcs and world building work in the real world, but then you're also going on a parallel journey with a with an invented magical supernatural world and then trying to work out a sweet spot where when you're watching it, it feels very much like you're holding a mirror up to our experiences today. Uh, but actually you're then folding in this world that who who knows it may exist, but it's certainly not as evident as, you know, the club scene is in Manchester or the apps are. So it's a really interesting blend. And in terms of Lauren, we run a uh, writer residence scheme that we set up uh, when I set the company up uh, about seven, seven and a half years ago. And um, every year we invite agents to send in uh, scripts by clients who are new uh, because we really believe in trying to help new talent get into the industry. It's very difficult to get in. And if anything, our superpower, if you like, if we had one, is that we're good on development. And so, you know, if we find somebody new that we love, then going on that journey, which is, you know, a challenging and difficult journey from being new to being, you know, an international writer of a show that just goes around the world, you know, that is, um, you know, it's an intense journey. And we've been on that with quite a few writers with with Tony Schumacher, obviously, and with Adam and Declan on the Salisbury Poisonings. And Lauren um, won our second ever writer residency bursary. And that meant that she got some money, um, but more importantly, on one level, got the keys to Dancing Ledge. And so it just meant that she could be in the company for a year and just hang out with us and sit in on development meetings, meet other writers we're working with, commissioners, and just feel a bit of love and feel like you're not alone and that there's a group of people who've got your back. And then the idea of that scheme is in the middle of that year, without actually too much pressure, to try and organically find an idea that you might do together. And so Domino Day was very... Um, subtly put on the table early on just as a kind of beginning of a seed of an idea and we just loved it we thought it was great and so we began that journey with Lauren of thinking about the characters that central journey and I think the thing that most uh, connected with us is in addition to the fact that Lauren was a brilliant writer was the fact that whilst it was a on one level uh, a kind of supernatural genre show Actually, more importantly, it was an expression of something that was inside Lauren. You know, there was a truth about it and the theme she was exploring in the central character that related to Lauren's lived experience. Not totally, obviously, unless Lauren has secrets. I don't feed off of people, no. But, you know, in terms of her journey uh, as a person and, and uh, as a company, we found that often that connection between, even if something's made up, if there's a kind of emotional autobiography to parts of it, it can give it something really special. And it also means that that writer is writing something that nobody else in the world could write. And so, you know, that that was our starting point. And then as soon as Lauren had got a sort of a handle on, on what it was and what the journey could be, then, we pitched it to the BBC, um, who responded really well. Lauren was already on a uh, on a BBC Writers' Room. What was the name of the BBC scheme? Uh, the TV Writers' Programme, yeah. TV Writers' Programme. So there was a kind of a desire already to support her. You know, they'd spotted her as somebody, you know, r- really brilliant um, and knew who needed support. And then we just spent a couple of years going through all, you know, the normal de- development journey of, you know, new drafts of the script, uh, working on outlines for the series. Um, and then, you know, which is very lucky, you know, it was, it got commissioned. Uh, it's been a good journey. And I, I think the thing, I'm really, really proud of the fact that this, this little sort of bursary writers and residence scheme actually has led all the way through to a real life, full-blooded, you know, six times 45 minute thing that exists now, you know, and, because it's a sort of, it's a great expression of, of what our ambition is for new talent and as a company. And um, yeah, we really, we really love the show. We really do. You know, it's like often you can be talking about things um, 
and you're just you're going through you know it's obviously a really good show but with I really feel that there's something special here and I think it is in that um that sort of mixture and interweaving of the real world with the supernatural world and and we're just blessed that Lauren is a great lover of those shows those genre shows but but also has something to say so it's very authored it's very her so it's yeah it's really in our wheelhouse we're very proud of it and, and Lauren I mean what was it like for you then writing an original show of yours because I know you've done all the obviously these schemes and you've worked in r- rooms for other people's shows so what was that like for you now taking the lead I guess and and like as Lawrence says it's, it's a very authored piece it's a very genre piece which is can be quite specific in a lot of ways so how was that like for you to lead um the writers that you who worked on your show to kind of lead through that process and and perhaps what did you learn from your previous experiences that you could utilize here yeah, I mean, I'd done quite a few writers' rooms uh, before Domino Day got greenlit, and they were all very different, very different projects, very different vibes within the room. So I sort of worked out for myself what I thought worked and didn't, and I sort of brought that experience. We did a very long room. Um, I think it was six weeks, wasn't it, Lawrence, or something? It was yeah, very long. Individual it was long. Yeah, yeah. Or um, UK standards, and I remember it was... Um, in in the time when the lockdowns had just finished and we had to socially distance and everything but everyone was just so happy to sort of be out the house and in a room sort of um coming together with a series um so yeah I just um I sort of like I wanted to structure the room in the way I was like you know let's start with the big big picture thinking about the themes and the characters and then towards the end of the room we started um really beating out the episodes and and then started writing outlines then all sort of reconvened to go through those outlines work out what was working and then go back into the room and um and tweak and then yeah the scripting process uh just sort of went full ahead were you always going to have a room and, and bring other writers in would you have wanted to do all six yourself and and you know be at that auteur kind of you know that figure on the show well, at, when it was greenlit, I was asked by the BBC, um, do you want to write it yourself or bring writers on? So they, they did give me that option. But um, I just think there's just something um, just really powerful about bringing other writers together. And uh, I really wanted female writers as well because it's such a female-led show. And especially when you're coming up with rules of the world and stuff, it's like it's good to get minds together. And something might be clear in what well, I think is clear in my head, but then my other writers would be like, oh, no, actually, maybe it could be more clearer if we do it like this. So, yeah, I, I think making TV in general is a collaborative effort. So more minds, the merrier. But of course, you know, making sure that your voice is is the clearest <laughs> and in the mix. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And And how did that then translate through production? Were you very hands on? you know, working with all the heads of department, you know, on costumes and, and sort of production design and, and you know, making sure that, you know, not authoritatively maybe, but you were influencing kind of every corner of the show because it is your show, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's why I really wanted to, um, ex- like, do my first exec producer credit on this as well because yeah. um, it's so much of me and just wanted to be part of those discussions about the music and the casting and the costume and um, the directors we brought on board were like, yeah, really up for that as well. Um, so, yeah. Lawrence, from a production point of view, I mean, what were some of the challenges you had maybe on, on this show? I guess Supernatural, there's lots of effects maybe in camera or, or VFX that you had to get your head around. Uh, yeah, we had some big ambitions for this, uh, which which I like to think we, we pulled off, where we wanted it to feel and look like the launch of a new you know, Marvel or superhero franchise, you know, to be that confident. Because whilst on one level, the series kicks off and you're looking at contemporary Manchester and the themes are very relevant today of like who you are, dating, sex, um, relationships, friendships, identity, uh, owning your own truth, you know, all of these things are very relevant. We're also dealing with supernatural powers that as the stories and episodes develop, become more prominent when you realise exactly what's going on. So, you know, it's very exciting. But essentially, when you make a show like that, you're being compared to Loki, you know, to the biggest international, 
you know, vampire, supernatural witch shows in the world. And you need to compete. You know, you don't want to look like uh, second best. And so we were just incredibly blessed to find a director in in Ever, Ever Sigurd Tortir, who is Icelandic and is pretty new, but just had that sort of forensic focus on making sure everything felt truthful. None of it felt sort of hocus pocus, you know. So the experience, it's very visceral and immersive when you watch it. And it's exciting because it, it's sort of our world, but then you go on a journey into a different world. Um, we had a, a brilliant um, executive producer and series producer in Eleanor Dare, Nick Pitt. And then we collectively looked at how we could find the right DOPs and costume designers and production designers who had that same sort of global ambition for it to compete at that level, um, but who could understand how we could do it on a budget, you know, and, and the budget is good, but it's not, it's not Hollywood Fox TV level, um, but it's, it, it's, it's decent. And so what we did in a, in a really good sort of, you know, British way is to overcome that is just found a, a cameraman who had an eye and a sense of color and a sense of style. He, he's a Danish guy called Philippe Kress, who just really elevated it a director who could find the truth in everything. And then we worked with a really brilliant Manchester-based um, VFX company. I mean, they do loads of other things about VFX, but we worked with them on the VFX called Doc10. And again, I think they, they read the scripts and saw it as a challenge. You know, how do we make this show feel like a really big international launch? And they put a huge amount of work into it. And it looks fantastic. You know, we're really, really pleased. But as Lauren said, it, it's a team effort. You know, it's how you get everyone together. And we we just ended up with a brilliant team. Who who are you hoping will, will come to the show? I guess BBC Three has a certain uh, audience sort of uh, demographic, perhaps of, of younger skewing viewers. but And the genre would eke out, you know, other types of viewers who are familiar with, you know, witchcraft and, and those sort of stories. Or, or are you hoping a broader audience will find it on iPlayer perhaps, you know, do you have ambitions like that or are you just hoping the more the merrier? I think both, to be honest. I mean, BBC Three obviously has a younger skew, you know, are a lot of our characters in their 20s, you know, we're capturing a, a sort of 20-something experience. Um, so it's definitely something that will work for a, a younger audience. But then it's also a show that will work for a genre audience who really like genre, which isn't confined to a specific age group. It's, it's really wide and appeal to people who just like a good drama you know it's the joy of it is that it's very the point of view of that central character domino played unbelievably well by sienna kelly who is a huge star you know just we were so, so lucky to have her she she just brings a truth to it all but you know that that works for anyone who wants a good drama really you know so it's sort of working across all three groups and then it's repeated on BBC One, so there's a different audience there. Um, so, yeah, Lauren, what's your what was your ambition when you started writing it? Yeah, as broad as possible. I, I have always believed there's, there will always be an appetite for the genre shows, like, you know, the vampires, all of that. Any mythical creature, people will turn up. But, yeah, it's the real-world dating aspects that I think will make it even broader. So, yeah, high high ambitions. I mean, I was, I was just with, you know, I guess looking at the state of the industry at the moment and and at Content London at the end of last year, you know, a lot of the talk was the industry contracting a little bit. People are trying to save money. And, and obviously that's leading to some job cuts, unfortunately, and, and advertising's down and, and all these sort of things are happening. And, and that inevitably leads to a lack of risk taking and, and people yeah. sort of. Re, you know returning to the the procedurals perhaps that they know people will love and and will always watch i mean did you get over the over the line just in time do you think is this would this be a risky show to commission in 2024 um, i don't i don't think it's a risky show but i mean the bbc are brilliant at getting behind new writers who they believe in and when they do believe in them just you know giving their work proper slots that are not like a new writer slot but are just, you know, a prime time slot. And not everyone does that, to be to be honest. Um, but, you know, we've had that experience with the BBC, obviously on the Responder for BBC One and on Domino Day, that when they see new talent that they love, then they 
put everything behind them. And now we're in the middle of having all of our Marcoms chats in the in the lead up to transmission. It's just so exciting, isn't it, Lauren, to have the social media team, the digital team, the marketing team, the press team, the channel team, um, all these different teams uh, working out how they can elevate it and make sure that it finds its audience. So, um, so no, we we feel very supported on that front. Yeah. And Lawrence, I mean, just as a producer running your own company, I mean, how are you looking ahead at 2024? I mean, in terms of the market at the moment and, and perhaps where the industry challenges are for you running the company? I think you wouldn't be doing the job running a company unless you were glass half full, because if you're glass half empty and you, you analysed everything always objectively, then you wouldn't start because the, the odds always seem are very high. But you have to believe. So I'm a real believer. And we've got some brilliant new ideas that we're setting up to do this, this year. We're finishing the Responder Series 2. There's another um, drama we're not um, able to talk about at the moment, which is, is soon to go into production. And um, so, you know, we're, we're sort of bullish, but, you know, we're not idiots. It, it, it is a really difficult market at the moment. Less is being commissioned. Um, there does seem to be a pivot to um, ideas and concepts that are more obviously commercial. Um, that That isn't in itself a bad thing, you know, because more commercial ideas, uh, if they're good, are still brilliant ideas. Um, so, you know, we're ducking and diving. You know, we're, do we're doing what we do all the time. But to answer your earlier question, we, we, we were lucky to get a few things commissioned just before the sort of downturn. And um, so we've been able to sort of work through that. But it's just a really difficult time. It's particularly difficult and factual, as you, as you, as you know, in terms of the number of commissions. Um, obviously, there's the writer's strike. Uh, there is a new um, pack back to deal that came in last year. Um, there's been a lot happening, economic downturn, advertising revenues down. So, you know, but I always think when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You know, you just have to find a way through. That's our job. You know, same for Lauren. It's, you know, you're there to believe, aren't you? And to believe you, your idea is the one that's going to get through. And then just, I guess, it, we can't avoid um, Mr. Bates and and versus the post office, which has had such a huge impact on, on ITV over the last couple of weeks and is changing government policy, I think, as we speak and as we record. And and just, Lawrence, having covered the Salisbury poisoning, which was a different sort of national event, but no, you know, no less talked about, perhaps. Um, what did you make of the impact that Mr. Bates has had and and the power of dramatising these sort of true stories and, and what can happen if you touch the nerve of the national consciousness, maybe? Well, I think it's absolutely wonderful. You know, it's sort of humbling, to be honest. And it's just so brilliant to see drama as a genre having that impact. I mean, it's a brilliant commission for Poly at ITV. It's brilliantly produced. Um, it's just, you know, written, uh, acted. It's it's a tour de force. So I I find it really, really exciting. I'd be lying if I was saying I wasn't a little bit jealous, you know, like, oh, I wish I'd done that, you know. But I think in a way that's the ultimate compliment, isn't it, when you see something like, oh, I'd have liked to have done that. But, yeah, it shows the power of drama, doesn't it? You know, there was a really interesting piece in The Guardian, I think, that went through, you know, the top 10 TV shows over the last 40 years that had had that kind of impact. And it's just brilliant when you turn on the radio, you know, you go online to news sites, you know, you watch TV and this this drama, you know, Mr. Bates' post office versus the post office has been um, a huge catalyst, hasn't it, for change, you know. So I think it's brilliant, yeah. And, and Lauren, what are you up to next? Is it is a season two on the cards, perhaps, or are you have you got other projects? Yeah, we're sort of having early discussions, aren't we, um, about ideas, where it could go. Um, yeah. I do leave the series with a few cliffhangers, and just getting other projects um, off the ground as well. Great. And and are you working solely in the UK? Are you looking in the US? And and sort of where are your ambitions, perhaps, to in terms of where you'd like to go next? Yeah, solely in the UK. Actually, I've I. I'm making sure I'm patient with myself in terms of uh, the US market. I mean, they have been knocking, um, but yeah, it's like it has to be the right project and the right time. Yeah. And ha having been through the Dancing Ledge sort of writer's scheme, I mean, what would you just say about the opportunities for new writers to break through and, and is is the industry supporting them enough or where are those sort of gaps or opportunities that perhaps aren't there that that could be? 
Yeah, I mean, there are quite a few schemes out there um, at the moment. Um, but, you know, Dancing Ledge are <laughs> at the top of like what they give to new writers, along with like, you know, BBC Writers Room. No, they've, they've rebranded, haven't they? BBC Writers, they call themselves now. Um, but yeah, I feel like more can be done. Like, I'd love more shadow schemes to be out there um, that are paid as well, where, you know, writers and directors can be on set and, and on greenlit productions and yeah, just getting that experience. Cause that's often the catch 22 of it all. It's like great ideas, but not experience. And it's like, how, how do you get that experience? Lawrence Sakira and Lawrence Bowen speaking with Michael Pickard. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.